In the dark shadows, in the white cold, fearlessly we search for knowledge new and old. We drink the strong spirits and read the ancient tomes. The order of the Abracast. We are the brave and the bold. The Abracast. Occult, history, conspiracy, and violence. On the show this evening, we have uh, Stephanie Quick. She's a writer at Ghost Dog is a Mystery Box blog. Uh, that's stephaniequick.home.blog. Uh, you can find her on Twitter at Wandering Britches. Uh, thank you very much for taking your time uh, this evening, Stephanie. Oh, thanks for inviting me, John. I'm excited about it. All right. So tell me about your blog. Like, uh, that's a pretty weird name for, uh, for a blog. <laughs> Well, it's, yes, yeah, Ghost Dog is a Mystery Box, an esoteric memoir, because, um, I don't know, from the time I was very, very small, like, as early as I can remember, which is before I was a year old, I was always concerned with finding out kind of what's behind the reality of things, what's the truth of what, what the heck is going on, right? <laughs> so, I, I was very interested in science and art and literature, and then also uh, paranormal weird stuff from the time I was very small. Um, so in the meantime, I, I had some health problems. I had a near death experience when I was, uh, 21. And then when I was in my early thirties, I got very involved with some, uh, esoteric groups. Um, so I'm 50, 57 now. And in the, about a year ago, I decided to start writing up some of my strange experiences and some of what I had come to determine, you know, like kind of my theories or general impressions about things. So I've been writing them up on that blog. I write a lot about synchronicities because I've had a lot of synchronicities. I've done a lot of experiments trying to uh, produce synchronicities and had some success. Um, uh, ghost stories, sometimes other people's experiences. And then I'm also very interested in uh, sex magic and sex with uh, discarnate entities, uh, ghosts, demons, uh, people out on the astral, that type of thing. So, Okay. So um, were you raised in a religious uh, environment as a kid? This, I, you sent me a spoiler alert. You sent me some questions, which is, <laughs> I wish I appreciated. And when I saw this one, I was thinking, you know, it's kind of a strange thing. It worked out perfectly for me and my own personal, how I am and my uh, interests. Um, especially in elementary school and uh, junior high and a little bit into high school, uh, my family was living in the East Bay, uh, kind of south of Berkeley. And this is like the 70s, like 1970, uh, 1975, around there. Um, so we were very involved in a church. My dad was church president for a while. He married people in that church. Mom was very involved. We went to Sunday school all the time, but it was a radical left-wing, politically active, Unitarian kind of 
church. Oh, in in Berkeley? I can't, I can't believe it. No, it was actually in Hayward, Star King Unitarian Church in Hayward. Okay. And okay. um, yeah. So it was it was pretty wild. It was great because you know you had a real diverse background. You know you had atheists, Jewish people. Uh, a few couples were you know there were of different faiths, and so they could be actually be married in church in a Unitarian church. Um, and the the structure of the Sunday service was you know you'd have your singing and all that stuff but you would have the minister would give a sermon you'd break and have a coffee and snack and then everyone would get to and then they have like a question and answer period about the subject of the sermon which okay. to me i thought oh this is perfectly normal growing up and you know the first time i went to like a mormon church or a catholic church i'm like well where's when do you get to ask questions <laughs> when do you get the when do you get the kool-aid break like that's what i'd be wondering Really? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then we also, in the fourth grade, because uh, the Unitarians, they, they were, the reason they're called Unitarians is because they don't believe in the Trinity. They, they believe that, that Jesus Christ was a man. So uh, to many Christians, this is heretical. But also it, um, it puts a lot more pressure and emphasis on kind of your own ethical, moral development and your actions in the world, right? Because mm -hmm. you don't have the excuse of it's like, well, I'm not... I'm not divine. I'm just a person. So I can't be that good. Right. It's like, okay, it's, it's on to you because if he could do it. Right. right. So, um, my dad actually helped develop a curriculum, which the whole church was involved in where, um, when you, in the fourth grade, you were introduced to kind of like the history of religion from like prehistory and, and some different, uh, religious religions and religious practices throughout the world and throughout time. And then, um, they presented to us, uh, you know, uh, many of the major religions that were popular at that time. And so, you know, we would go and um, visit a lady who was a Seventh-day Adventist, and she talked to us about uh, her faith and her religious life. And then, you know, you go to the Mormon church, you go to the Episcopal, you know, so that we could decide as in it kind of blows my mind that, you know, we we're just like nine years old and they're giving us this very big, I, um, you know, agency as far as our spiritual and ethical and uh, personal conscience. So for me, it was, um, I, I thought it was great. It was fun too, because they had like folk, you know, it's the seventies. <laughs> they had folk <laughs> dancing, which was a lot of fun. And then, you know, it was that kind of time where you could be a kid, but adults would talk to you seriously a lot more in this particular church. And they had potlucks every month with all this great food. And there was like a Creek down the hill. So we'd just be like these wild kids running down to the Creek and come back up to eat and then running down, you know, in the dark. Yeah. So, this is when Zodiac was active in the area too, so I don't know what anyone was saying. <laughs> so, um, do you think that that sort of in environment kind of uh, helped you on your on your journey? It seems like it's like wildly open. So, I was raised predominantly in a Southern Baptist, and you know when I would have like major questions, they would be like, "Hey, you know, can you describe to me more about this flood?" And they'd be like, "Oh, sure, we have this cartoon here for you." You know, oh, like boy. not you know, not like talking about these things in any kind of seriousness, like, Hey kid, this is the, you know, this is the story. This is the cartoon. Like it's, it's got everything you need in there, you know? So it's, it's interesting to me that they're like, they were like talking to you as a, adults and like being real with you about uh, the, the, um, the religion instead of kind of hiding it behind these childish things. Yeah. And it was, it was a very open, uh, very kind of Socratic dialogue type of atmosphere. And of course it was helped that it was, 
the seventies and, you know, sort of a ton of hippies. There was a lot of political mm-hmm. activism. Um, they were involved in, you know, like the takeover at Alcatraz and, uh, uh, United farm workers strike. They did a lot, you know, an anti-war activism against the Vietnam war. Um, but yeah, I thought it, for me, it was, it was really perfect because I have always been very interested in that side of life, uh, the spiritual side of life, um, the occult side of life, but also what, how does our uh, moral and ethical development and how we uh, behave as people in the manifest world, how does this relate to these ideas? Um, so for me, it was, I, looking back, I'm kind of blown away that I was exposed to something that perfect, you know, for yeah. me. So. Yeah, it's really cool. So you kind of just dropped a couple like uh, bombs earlier. You're like, oh, yeah, I had a near-death experience <laughs> and I was in some esoteric groups. Can you unpack that stuff for me a little bit? Yes. So um, when I was uh, 15, I became seriously ill with what looks like was probably like an autoimmune disease that attacks the lungs somehow. And they thought I was going to die. Not like, oh, well, for those few hours, wow, it was really close. It's like for months and months. Oh, geez. You know, and I had to take a ton of prednisone. And which, of course, gives you all these really uh, bad side effects. And I missed almost a year of school my junior year. And um, that was, you know, it's a horrible experience when you're just on the cut, like when you just hit puberty. Like I'd only been menstruating for probably like about a year or so. And I was a late bloomer. So I'd only, I'd been teased for being flat for years. And I finally got breast. <laughs> but then I, so you're, in, you're starting to become like an independent adult in these ways, right? You know, you're thinking, oh, 15, 16, I can get my driver's license, right? And then to just be infantilized, because, you know, you just, you can't do anything for yourself. And, you know, your parents are dragging you around to all these doctors who say, I don't know what's going on. It was very stressful. Actually, that was the time right after I, I got sick. I hadn't been sick really for more than a month. I got sick right around the time of my dad's birthday in November. And uh, my mom's dad died. And then, um, there was, you know, the Jonestown massacre. Oh yeah. Yeah. That happened. And then, uh, I forget if it was before or after, but in all here in the Bay area, there was a huge number of people that were down in there from the Bay area. And then, uh, representative Dan White murdered, um, uh, the mayor and Harvey milk Harvey here. Milk, right. Yeah. Moscone and milk here in San Francisco, which was just, completely i still get chills when i listen to diane feinstein who's gone on to greater things but she was like just on the city council then and she had to come up and say you know the moscone's been killed white's or uh, harvey milk's been killed and, and harvey milk was very beloved um and then people are just like screaming and she's like and the suspect is dan you know supervisor dan white and everyone just they just things just go crazy because of course it's insane <laughs> Yeah. But it was so it was very much of a situation like everything's falling apart there. But um, it, this is one of the things that really got me thinking about the whole because uh, you you uh, talked to me about talking about sex magic some. And I've been reading a lot of the uh, like Victorian sex magicians and they all talk about needing to maintain a very high uh, ethical and moral discipline if you're going to be practicing you know, sex magic. And I think part of it, 
this has a resonance for me because when I got so sick and I'd been sick for a couple months and I just kept getting sicker and I couldn't do anything. I mean, you know, forget getting even dressed because you're that just sick. And, you know, I'll be there in the house all day alone. It's a couple months. There was like no hope from any of the doctors. I could just tell, you know, my parents were just like freaking out and trying not to show it. I mean, it's horrible. And I would just go around every day. I was so depressed and I'd look at anything in the house I could use to kill myself. Oh, geez. But the thing was, I was thinking, can I, can I do this to my family? And I couldn't. So even though really I would have been more than happy to just not go through any of that, I made the choice to put other people's happiness before my own selfish needs, basically. Um, and I really think that this came back to me later um, because when I was 21, I ended up getting this sickness again, and it was very bad. I ended up in the hospital. They were giving me uh, intravenous uh steroids which is exciting <laughs> nothing was <laughs> budging it so the doctor this is my same doctor decided to do this procedure where they they put a bronchoscope up up your nose and down into your lungs and then they spray like lidocaine all over your lungs oh my god like uh when they numb you up yeah and it can stop if you're bronch you're just spasming uncontrollably because they're just they can't get it together <laughs> in some cases that'll calm them down and break the cycle which it did however um, I had uh, Hashimoto's thyroiditis and had my thyroid removed and I didn't regain calcium function or parathyroid function. So I went into convulsions for 20 minutes during oh, this procedure. Geez. And it was weird because the doctor is there and, you know, you can see this, this red light coming out of your chest from the laser that's on the end of this bronchoscope and you're nose to nose with this doctor and they keep spraying this stuff and you inhale on the spray and you exhale. And so it's like really started, I'm sure some of it was the lidocaine, but also just this meditative breathing and you're focusing on healing and you have this light in your heart. You know, it's like it mirrors, as I found out later, a lot of elements of Chenrezy meditation. So it was strange that I kind of had this meditation and before, the whole thing happened. It's like you started experience. It's like you, your separate self was starting to go away. Having this person like doing this thing with you, like, I mean, literally nose to nose, cause these things aren't very big. So, um, then it was like, all of a sudden I just fell into this, like the classic void of the Bardo, right? It's like really, really loud and really big. And there's nothing there, but there's just this crowdedness of consciousness just like pouring constantly off everything. And everything you think, you're just pure consciousness. You have it just everything that you're used to using to orient yourself is gone instantly. It was sometimes you get people that are kidnapped by like aliens or something. They talk about like this artificial fear or this just this fear that's beyond fear. It was like that. It's just terrifying. Um, and visually, it's just, and the whole time for me, it was just kind of like black with maybe like some kind of scattered stars that would kind of move. So it wasn't very interesting that way. But so I was just in this space and, you know, there's no up, there's no down. You're not breathing. You're not a body. It's just completely disorienting. And I could sense these huge beings. I mean, like probably about, sounds corny, probably about the size of like the Empire State Building, maybe wide. Wow. <laughs> really and they were just like making themselves like really, really, really obvious, but they weren't pushing, right? So it's like I, they're saying, do you want 
like this question and I just said yes. And then it was just like, bam, they started giving me all these teachings on all these various levels, uh, speaking, you know, saying, pay attention, um, explaining to me about practices to help get healthy, uh, giving me a neutral mind transmission, explaining mindfulness, uh, meditation, um, all this while it was like, I'd be following the sensation of falling through uh various dimensions like it, it would be everything would start out really big and then be like falling you get smaller and smaller and smaller oh. and then finally pop out into this the bigness again you know over and over this kind of fractal thing that's very common in near-death experiences yeah um, so it sounds kind of like a half alien abduction and a half like a classic near-death <laughs> experience I think it would be more uh, just a people mostly say it's a classic near-death experience yeah because I didn't see any type of aliens or whatever. Later on, um, so anyway, let's see. I had this experience. I woke up. Of course, my mind was completely blown. I just kept seeing the void, like, <laughs> everywhere I looked for at least a month. But I started working with these practices that I'd been exposed to and, um, you know, just walking to strengthen what they – my understanding at the time was it's kind of like an organ – but it's kind of like uh, more immaterial. It's kind of like between your soul and your body in of a mid-type of substance that would be halfway between those two things. Mm-hmm. But it holds your soul into your body and you strengthen it by walking. You know, later on, I figured oh, that sounds like the root chakra. <laughs> <laughs> but but And I heard, of course, given my upbringing, I heard the word chakra a billion times, but there's a difference the difference between how it's explained and that kind of visceral experience of it. Um, and then I was also doing mindfulness meditation and uh, work on developing my compassion with other people because I would just, Oh God, before that I would get in fights with any, I could go down to the corner store, get a pack of gum and manage to get in a screaming fight with people. <laughs> <laughs> so I mellowed out a little bit. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. We've been talking a lot about, uh, stoicism like stoic philosophy on the podcast and oh, wow. um, uh, I, that's the way that i look at it is just like the art of not giving a shit you know like what does it matter just like let it go <laughs> so I prioritizing yeah yeah okay so mm-hmm. uh, uh your near-death ex- your near-death experience were you able to rejoin these beings at any time or was it just like one and done no it, it's just it's been a constant presence in my life ever since and i i feel so ridiculous saying that because i just sound like i should be sitting here with like eight million sparkly purple scars (laughs) (laughs) but i think that this type of thing is a lot more common than people like to acknowledge in our society because it you know because of the stereotypes associated with it but yes i have um been in uh, contact with them so that was when i was 21 when i was in my early i was 32, I think maybe, um, I'd been practicing by myself for a long time and I got, um, I had, a was engaged to a guy and for my birthday one year, he took me to uh, the Asian art museum. They had an exhibition of Tibetan Buddhist art and I really enjoyed it and I was interested in it, but I saw this one dark tanka of Paldon Lama. He's like a protector, uh, goddess, very, uh, fierce. And I was like, so excited i was like this does not look anything like anything that i saw in my near-death experience but they're talking about the same thing i'm like that's it and it was the first time that i had seen anything 
remotely that spoke to my experience. So I was very excited. So that got me interested in Tibetan Buddhism from seeing that one Tonka. None of the other pieces did it for me, but that one, for whatever reason, managed to, I had that recognition. So yeah. I was just going to so, say, it's like that, uh, it's like a, a synchronicity on like some level, like you were able to understand that the, that dude in the, your other like beings were talking about the same thing. I think that that's very interesting. Yeah. It happens now and then with, you know, different people. And to me, it's fascinating how you can, um, how this meaning can come through the very diverse sources and, and, um, you know, different kind of categories of, of life, you know, it can come through emotionally or through a piece of art or through another piece of art in a completely different style and medium, these type of things. But, um, so anyway, when I broke up with this, uh, actually, I guess you broke, I can't remember who broke up with who anyway. <laughs> <laughs> he started it though. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I went and moved in at this, uh, Tibetan Buddhist meditation center and they it wasn't a huge group of people they'd have like Sunday night meditations and they had a Rinpoche there he's still there and uh, different teachers coming through and uh, so I was there, lived there for a couple years and had a lot of adventures I learned an incredible amount there but I saw some things that I just really couldn't endorse too but um and when I was there, I met a lady that I ended up uh, dating who is a like a shaman trained Native American, various traditions, she ran a sweat lodge every month. So I'd help out with that and stuff. And then I uh, met my probably one of my, my biggest teacher, my biggest earthly teacher, as far as <laughs> meditation teacher, Leslie Temple Thurston who um, at that time, she was coming to our area fairly, like maybe once or twice a month for a weekend. And you just have, you know, two or 300 people sitting for silent meditation for several hours, you know, four to eight hours in a day with a couple breaks. And she'd talk and mostly meditate. So I learned an incredible amount from her. And just, just, it's funny how, how, how much easier it is and this gets again to uh, like sex magic which is a lot about magic with other people how much easier it is to achieve uh, certain expanded states of awareness and hold them when you're working with uh, another person or in a group so there's mm -hmm. big risk to that but i think that there's a lot of benefit too so anyway at that point um all type of crazy stuff happened and i was <laughs> really into that um but i could only keep that up for you know i don't know a couple of three years and then uh, I left the center and I kind of um, uh, tamped down my group activity there. Um, I was, you know, I've always been maintained a, a certain amount of practice and um, research, reading, that type of stuff. So then about, let's see, I started to get interested in synchronicities about 17 years ago, probably. And my... Um, blog is named after a synchronicity experiment that I did. I, you know, I've had ongoing problems with this lung trouble and I was just married. I was 37 or so, and I became very, very ill and I had to use just like screamingly high doses of prednisone. It's just like, just this side of being able to kill you. 
And when I came down off that, I was alive, but I had, as it turned out, severe nerve damage, which was giving me a lot of problems. I couldn't drive. I could, I'd have to take like two Vicodin and then 40 minutes later go on my walk and come back because that was it. You know, I couldn't even just like go to the grocery store with my husband and do that without it just being, you know, I'd end up crying from the pain. It was really bad. And I've been going to these doctors. They're like, well, we can't find anything. And then, you know, why don't you take this pill? It's like, well, it doesn't work. The one thing that would work would be like opioids. But then, of course, you're a sick. So it was getting to be a really bad problem. And I needed a diagnosis. So I was reading this book about synchronicities. And they said, well, um, one of the things about synchronicities is that they're really easy to uh, scare up. You just pay attention to synchronicities anything that pops up in your life, pay attention to it, uh, think about them, read about other people's, and this should cause you to have more, just keep track of them. And I realized that in the past, every time I got really sick, around the time things would start to turn around, I'd have some type of numinous experience, like something like uh, my near-death experience, less severe usually. Um, (laughs) But I thought, you know, I'm... I'm not going to get anywhere near that sick with this thing, but it's still a big problem. So maybe if I, because I know, you know, synchronicities are associated with all these paranormal events. Um, They're associated with near death, uh, mystical experiences, alien abduction, uh, poltergeist phenomenon, ghost phenomenon, big feet, the whole thing. So I thought maybe if I drum up some synchronicities, it'll kind of draw enough of this kind of numinous energy out that it'll help resolve this. So it was a month until I was going to see this neurologist. So I decided to start trying to focus my attention on having synchronicities. And I had some fun ones. Then the day of my appointment, my mom was going to come pick me up. It was in the afternoon. So that morning I went on my walk. And I just make kind of a regular loop, most of this back and forth. So I got on my loop. I was coming back up this hill. And I saw, coming over the crest of the hill, um... One, this neighbor of mine named uh, Pam and her dog Biscuit and then a new dog. And I was excited because I see uh, Pam, I don't know, we personally never really got along that great, but I really love Biscuit. So, and she loved it too. So I always pet Biscuit. It was a cutie. So I was like, oh, that's nice. And I kind of, my attention wandered away from them for a second. And then I looked back and it was just Pam and this new dog. And then where Biscuit was, was kind of like a, a small white translucent box. Then they all disappeared. So maybe 20 to 40 seconds, maybe a minute later, Pam comes over the crest of the hill with her new dog because Biscuit had died. Oh. Yeah. So I was like, why am I seeing doppelganger, my neighbor and her dog, plus a ghost dog who turns into a box, a mystery box. But that afternoon, I got a diagnosis. Oh, wow. yeah. So, and then I, they, then people were more comfortable giving me the medicines that would help. So, yeah. So it works. So that got me interested in synchronicities. And then since then, um, Steve Ray designed an experiment that we did on the uh, host and guests of Radio Mysterioso a few years ago, where we would uh, we communicated in secret. Um, and all, all electronically. And so we'd choose target words for whatever the next live show was going to be and see if we could get synchronicities to show up on the show. Ah. And we had documentation of this. So um, probably the most famous one that came out of that experiment was the uh, show where we had the target of heat. And 
I guess uh, Greg, this was when uh, Greg Bishop was broadcasting out of a pirate radio studio in Los Angeles. Kind of, I don't know where in Los Angeles it was. Anyway, so I guess you're listening along to the show and at a certain point you hear Greg's like, oh, oh no. Oh, and he runs outside because he was parked out front and there was a car parked next to him had been hit by another car and it was all the smoke was pouring out of it. Oh no. <laughs> so we called that a hit. But uh, yeah. So I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, no, it's okay. It's good. <laughs> so, This month in the Fulgore Correspondentia, we have an Armor of God illustration for our spiritual warfare episodes. There's an updated brief timeline of Genesis, according to me, and the wrong son, wrong blessing, wrong curse graphic, um, since we are still working through Esau and Jacob. Uh, there's a tarot card preview and also the February Abra fast schedule. We're doing another fast cycle in February. If you want to get the dates, uh, go ahead and hit that up. All you got to do is sign into the mailing list and receive the Fulgar Correspondentia. The Fellow Craft episode uh, is the UFO Conspiracy Part 2. We are continuing to dissect the work of classic conspiracy theorist Milton William Cooper. Uh, all you got to do is sign up for the three dollar tier on patreon or subscribe star learn more at abracast.com get bonus content by signing up for the mailing list get all that plus many exclusive episodes by supporting the show at patreon.com or subscribestar.com Um, so did the synchronicities lean lead to more of the the sex magic stuff, or was that in the like in the background? So how did you find yourself on this path, and like how did you become interested in sex magic? Well, it's, the the big interest in um, sex magic, sex ritual, came up when I was in the Tibetan Buddhist Meditation Center because. Um, the Rinpoche there, as I came to discover over a period of time, was approaching women in dreams and offering them, um, you know, good karma and, uh, you know, uh, meditation, advancement, all that type of stuff, if they would give uh, sleep with them and keep it quiet. Hey, I got to mm -hmm. tell you, I've, mm -hmm. I've had some pretty good moves in my day, but that is... <laughs> That is a great move. <laughs> it's a terrible move because no one wanted to take him up on it. <laughs> Although I was very, actually, he, the first, well, I'd had inklings about this because I moved up there and I was like one of two women living with like 10 guys and everyone's all worked up about it because I was 
you know, I was in my early 30s and everyone else was a lot older, so I probably looked pretty good in comparison. <laughs> but, but anyway, um, so I kind of figured, you know, there was some skeeviness going on around that. And I could tell that some of the young women practitioners especially would get real uptight kind of around Rinpoche and not even sex, but kind of like hit what he was doing behind the scenes kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so then one night I'm sitting there just sleeping, minding my own business, and I am dreaming, and I'm just in my room at the center, and it looks exactly like my room at the center, and the door opens, and Rinpoche comes in, and I just woke up real quick. And it was like that kind of ringing feeling in the room. And I was like, wow, that was because he was, it was just so straightforward and so clear that it was kind of shocking. And then, you know, something about me said, you know, you got to get out of here. I, I have always read a lot of Dion Fortune and she talks about um, these different levels of attainment and different levels of uh, uh, consciousness or astral states, right? So if you have someone who's pretty good at kind of a lower astral type of magic, but you have someone who is uh, at, at can attain to the highest spiritual realms and hold that uh, completely expanded clear consciousness, the person who can hold the really expanded clear consciousness is going to have it over the person who's working on a lower level, right? Yep. And it comes down to, in a lot of ways, just skill, right? If I go, I'm you know, I'm a small, weak, clumsy woman. If I go in an arena with a mixed martial arts fighter, who's going to win, right? It doesn't matter who's right or who's a nice person, <laughs> right? So I think she always talks about if, if you're confronted with or being harassed by a person who's a lot more adept than you and they're trying to get at you that way, she's like, just get out of that space. You know, in the dream world, he'd have the advantage over me. But in if you, if I'm not there, right? And it was interesting because he treated me very differently afterwards. He like cut a lot of the BS and stuff. So I thought that there was something to it because of his change in attitude. But then uh, right before I left, oh my gosh! Speaking of sex magic, there are two doves I can see right now. They just they just did it. <laughs> <laughs> They're very cute. They're very sweet. Um, but anyway, uh, it's spring. Uh, so right before I left, there was a lady and her husband who had moved to the center. They had been living across the country and been students of Rinpoche's for years. And this, um, they were pretty wealthy. And the wife decided that they were going to sell everything and come over here and get this, you know, place into shape and really get Rinpoche doing a lot of empowerments and all that type of stuff. Okay. So they move over and she doesn't like me, but whatever. So she asked me to go shopping with her one day downtown Berkeley and we're bopping around. She said, Stephanie, I had this dream last night and I just can't figure out for the life of me what it could be about. But so I thought maybe you could help me. I'm like, well, run it by me. So she says, well, I was dreaming and Rinpoche came to me and he said that he would offer me all this attainment and great karma and spiritual advancement, but I had to have sex with him and not tell anyone about it. <laughs> it seems pretty cut and dry. That's the, that's the part where I have to admire him. I mean, in a, a lot of the llamas that I saw, there is like they're very adept at this. I mean, but using it for a completely stupid and depraved purpose, but very adept. 
So I said, well, I think it means da da da. And da da da, which just goes to show if you don't, I mean, and that's part of the thing too, is that, you know, you get experience like that and it's very challenging on a personal level, just that this can happen. Even if someone came to you and just said, hi, I'm John Doe, right? <laughs> that kind of clear coming across. But then with this gross you know, proposition behind her husband's back when they had just sold everything. And, you know, it's just, it's so gross. But yeah. that really got me uh, thinking about the possibility for abuse and manipulation, even though I could also see from other experiences that I was having at the time, that there was an opportunity for great, um, you know, you could really uh, do some profound work. You could achieve these incredible states of consciousness and uh, could be an incredible means for spiritual uh, experimentation and growth. Um, but I think that a lot of the kind of secrecy around it and the hierarchical stuff can be abused. So I'm more interested in trying to speak out about it a little bit so people, um, you know, that they don't feel like they have to give over any of their power you can have an experience that is good for you and that you want to have and um you know you can kind of control your own destiny because i mean we're all here because of sex so you don't have to have someone give you that transmission we're all here because we're overflowing we are connected to the divine right it's, it's everywhere so if you don't need some guru to come and you know, give this to you from on high. It's people to, to work. And of course, it's very helpful to have transmission through a lineage, to have teachers, but you don't need to give over all your power to them. And you can ask them questions and you can decide what you want to do. So. Yeah, it like boils down to uh, consent and power dynamics, it seems like. Um... Yeah. And I think, I don't know, I like to, I was hearing uh, Mitch Horowitz talk on a little bit about the power of sex transmutation. And he, I really like what he said. That these are ideas. You can experiment with them and think about them in private, which I think is different than saying, because everyone, you know, it, especially these types of profound practices, it brings up a lot of personal stuff. It can be very challenging, very emotionally uh, difficult to deal with. And so people can need a lot of space during these things and it's just no one's a lot of it's no one's business but um to expect someone to embark on some type of big you know sexual tantric practice or something with no discussion about it beforehand or you're not telling them or you can't come across them straight in the reality where you both are adept right like Rinpoche you know he wouldn't approach these women where they would have a lot more power to say no you know right. whatever you know, he comes where he knows that he has the advantage. I think someone that comes at you that way, I think it's, I would not pursue a relationship with them personally. Yeah. Unless they were super hot, but even then, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, let's talk about the different, you identify a few different types of sex magic. Um, I was wondering if you can kind of talk about, talk about them and maybe uh, an example or two of each one. Yeah, now this uh article that I wrote called uh, Sex Magic 101. And basically, I was just, you know, this is just a framework that I've come up with to kind of talk, group some of these practices together, if you're just getting interested in it. Um, they, 
sex and breathing are two things that people just go to when it comes to uh, spiritual practices and uh, accessing the body in these expanded states. Um, so there are just a ton of different uh, methods and ideas out there, but I kind of grouped it in about four different types of things. I have to check my notes here. I haven't looked at it for quite a while. <laughs> um, and the other thing to realize is when I give an example, a lot of these practices, you can use them all. If you're trying to accomplish a magical purpose, you can use them all towards these magical purposes. Um, and all of them, I believe, can kick over into mystical uh, states of consciousness, which a lot of these practices are also uh, interested in. So a lot of it comes down to your own creativity and how you want to uh, structure this if you're going to be pursuing these as magical practices. But the first one that's pretty popular is raging, uh, raging raising energy. Um, people that are going to charge a sigil, or if you're in a uh, magical circle and you're a Wiccan, and you have some type of uh, project that you're wanting to accomplish. Let's say you're looking for a new job, right? So you want to get the whole new job thing going for you ritually. Um, you can use sex to raise mm -hmm. energy. And then at the climax of your proceeding, you kind of uh, energetically or uh, on a subtle level, you throw this energy at your project there. Okay. And use that to charge whatever if you have a talisman or a sigil um, some people will do this to consec uh, consecrate uh, ritual tools um, and so on but th this is just kind of a basic thing it, it's really the same principle as if for example you are um, I want to say you know if you're like chanting singing uh meditating together that type of thing and then you know offering this energy at the end um you can do it individually uh you can uh do it as a group together um the if you're doing it with a group it, it starts to become a little bit more interesting and into the whole esoteric side of sex involving uh manifesting new forms and exchange between the partners because oftentimes you'll have one person who is uh, kind of taking charge of directing that energy towards the project in a group so in that way you kind of have the two uh, different poles of the people who are just kind of creating this massive energy and then the person who is kind of directing it and kind of grounding it in in the other thing so you have the two uh aspects working together the yin and yang um i see the the second group that I wrote is a manifestation through use of bodily fluids. Now, this gets into a lot of real kind of arcane theory that is popular pretty much worldwide, I think, here and there. But it's the whole idea that you bodily fluids um, can be used for uh, creating an energetic or magnetic connection to another person. Um, the whole idea of stealing a lock of someone's hair and then putting it in a voodoo doll or mm -hmm. putting it in a honeypot if you want to get closer to them, let's say. Um, and then the other thing that people would use this for is um, if you are uh, doing like demonic magic in the terms of uh, contacting various demonic entities or trying to manifest a god or goddess or that type of thing, causing physical manifestation. Um, oftentimes, uh, me blood, menstrual blood, 
will be used for this. I always kind of wonder about the, uh, I want to say, like the Mayans and like the Aztecs, especially, they were so bloodthirsty and they would just have all those sacrifices, human sacrifices. And I kind of wonder if having all that blood around would help uh, manifest some type of entity. I don't know. I'm just speculating. But this is very popular. Another popular use of uh, bodily fluids among some people is if you, uh, this is a classic folk magic among um, uh, America and Europe. Um, if you are a young woman and you have your eye on a certain young man and you can invite him over for, let's say, coffee, and you add some of your menstrual blood to that coffee, it's supposed to get him super interested in you sexually. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and help to bind you two together. Yeah. So we were talking um, a while ago, and you had mentioned um, uh, the idea of sperm retention, but the way that you framed it was interesting because I never really thought of it that way is that it was um, like a form of birth control. Um, Yes. One of the things to remember with a lot of these um, partnered sex practices that come from way back in the past is that um, there weren't a lot of great methods of birth control. And pregnancy and birth was a lot more, it's still pretty dangerous, especially here in America. But, um, you know, you can die, the child can die. It's not an easy way to go. You could be left paralyzed. You could have a stroke. I mean, it it can be very uh, dangerous. So a lot of these people, you know, like the the Quakers, I think, did this. A lot of people in, in the Victorian era that were interested in these types of uh, sex magic would uh, use um, holding off on ejaculation as uh, it could be a method of birth control as well as a spiritual practice. Um, There is a wild article. If anyone's real interested in a lot of the arcane stuff about this, there's a lot of material at the luckymojo.com site by Kat Ironwood. She, I guess, has been a practitioner of Kareza, um, which was a Victorian era sex magic practice. um, system developed by Alice Bunker Stockham. They talk about holding off on uh, orgasm and ejaculation for both men and women. And it, it's kind of one of these situations where you just kind of hold off for a while and you raise up enough energy that it kicks you over into these mystical states of consciousness. Um, and then you can do whatever you want in these altered states of consciousness. But she talks about an ex- experiment that John Lilly did the guy who gave LSD to dolphins later. Yeah. So yeah. he was looking at monkey brains, I think, when they were going through orgasm. And there's kind of like these four different parts of the brain that were involved. But the two parts that kind of got me interested in was she was talking about there's the, the part of the brain that controls like the uh, muscular spasms associated with orgasm or ejaculation. But then there's another part of your brain that is generating the uh, pleasurable sensations of orgasm. So she was saying, it's like in a way, if you can kind of tease those parts apart, right, then you can have these like extended uh, periods of bliss or sensation of release without risking so much of the pregnancy. Yeah, I think a a lot of these, you know, a lot of these uh, sperm retention techniques go back to uh, Taoist sexual alchemy back in China uh, centuries and centuries ago. And they develop a lot of um, theories about the power of sperm and kind of directing it back up towards the head so you're not losing this 
Well, as I said in, uh, what's the one with the guy that rides the missile dander? Dr. Strange, love, you're not losing your precious bodily fluids. <laughs> they attach these missiles, and that's part of the bodily fluids, is that there tend to be these a lot of mystical ideas attached to the bodily fluids. Um, in some practices, uh, you will um, consume the mixed fluids after intercourse mm -hmm. as a sacrament, or this can be given to you as a transmission um, to, you know, some other people have been uh, having this, like let's say your teacher and his consort uh, have been practicing cosmic union, and then afterwards you mm -hmm. consume the conjoined fluids as your transmission in initiation into this practice in this particular lineage. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so that's that. Yeah. Then there's not. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say that we see this stuff in um, the OTO and like in alchemical exactly. things, like the the red lion and the the white eagle or the white eagle yep. and the red lion and and uh crowley talked extensively about those um miracle cakes or uh mm -hmm. i think that's i think that's what he um he called them and i think it's interesting because at a, at a point in time like this was all like taboo stuff oh, you yeah. know but if you if you just take like a quick breeze through Pornhub, you're like oh shit it's kind of taken over the world you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of interesting how quickly this whole thing has uh, gone over. But it's still, I don't know, I think in some ways there's still a lot of misconceptions and and uh, taboo about sex um, out there, even though you have a lot of porn. But most people aren't having sex in a way that's going like, to look great for on camera. Right, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, that's not really the – I think some people – are, are very exhibitionist, but most people, I think it's an internal experience and it has to do with the relationship and the communication between the, the participants, which, yeah. you know, so I think that, you know, we have, it's like, Oh, why should anyone, because there's all this information about sex. It's like, well, it's stuff to titillate you, but, but does it feed the soul, John? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. It's like, um, uh, there's a tool song that I talk about whenever we talk about these uh, sort of topics where he's just talking about, you know, the, uni the unification of the opposites and the part of the chorus is just, he's just says, breathe in union, breathe in union just over and over again. And I'm like, Oh my God, he's talking about, you know, sex right now. It's, uh, it's pretty interesting. You find it a lot of places that you might not think that you would find it. And the interesting thing, a thing to me is, you know, you were talking a little a bit in the questions about the esoteric theory of sex and, um, you know, the esotericists or occultists will talk about that, you know, we, we are multi-layered, multi-dimensional beings, right? You have a, a physical body, you have a spiritual body, you have an intellectual and an emotional body. Um, and they would talk about, you know, sex you can have physical sex that, you know, result in pregnancy. Uh, then there's great, passionate, physically exciting sex, right? That's another layer on top of that. Then if you have a deep emotional connection with the person, right, that adds something even more. If it's, you know, a person where you have good communication about practical matters and living your life, that type of thing, even better. Um, if you, have uh, morals and intellectual ideals in common, right? Yeah. Then you're thinking this is some okay. I want to marry this person. <laughs> <laughs> 
right? Yeah. So, so like, I'm sorry. Go ahead. So, but the thing is, is that also you can have a sexual type of ex, a, a sex function exchange on like an emotional level or an intellectual level or a spiritual level without the physical sex happening. But from an esoteric angle, it's still that same exchange between the two parties and the union bringing forth something new. Yeah. So I found all this stuff very fascinating. Um, uh, I think on the Kaspira normal podcast, you were talking to those guys about just something like, uh, you know, your partner editing a paper or, or a letter that you wrote and giving it and giving it back is a kind of a representation of um, this esoteric framework. Am I yes. too far off on it? No, not at all. I think that um, this one of the things that I really tried to convey to people because because I want everyone to have a good relationship with sex and if they're interested in learning about it, to be able to learn about it in a way that will work for them. And I think there's this conception that you have to be some I don't know, like a Tumblr witch who's like super sexy and young and edgy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm sitting here like, well, that boat has sailed. But, <laughs> but I mean, what about, you know, for the rest of us, there's, you can learn a lot more, I think, about the interaction by looking at the world around you and then at your interactions with different people in your life. Um, I like this podcast called Weird Studies and they did a um, show not too long ago. I don't think it's the latest one. I forget the name of it, but I'll put it in notes. And uh, I really enjoy it because it's a, a music professor and a filmmaker. And you can tell that they both have these similar interests and they met each other. And it's just this huge creative flowering and it's fantastic. They'll talk about, you know, like uh, Thomas Ligotti and Shirley Jackson and all this weird stuff, Flannery O'Connor. And it's just fascinating, really fun because there's this incredible chemistry between them. And so it's like the sex function from an esoteric angle is when you have two unique individuals coming together and they bring something new into manifestation. So they have this podcast, they have uh, great articles that they've both written. And it's fun because on this uh, recent show, uh, the one guy, JF Martell was talking about, they talked about the duende and it's like the idea of this uh, kind of spirit that just comes down and takes over. And he talked about sometimes when they're speaking together or recording for the podcast and they get so swept up away in the ideas and, and the creativity. And it's just like, everything's new. And it's just this beautiful um, portrayal of this type of chemistry, this type of situation, but happening on an intellectual creative plane. Not yeah. Yeah, I think so. Like I mentioned before, I thought that all that stuff was fascinating. I was riveted to all that. And I think um, so to me, uh, I do the cooking in my house. I feel like I'm a pretty good cook, but I'm always trying to beg my wife into cooking with me. Mm -hmm. And through that lens, I'm like, oh, like this is this is one of those esoteric frameworks that um that stephanie was talking about like you know we're working together like to make a dish that's going to sustain us like on the basic level like i thought that i thought it was fascinating i was blown away by all of that stuff there's just the, the editing the the letter or the note and just thinking about it in my own kind of life and i was just like wow it literally is everywhere it literally is everywhere yeah, if I mean, I've I've always been very interested in the natural world and to just look around at just how much 
our world is affected by just, just sex in terms of the incredible creatures that are out there. But then when you start to look at, um, and in this way, I kind of like the, the yin and yang symbol and, and concept. Um, I live in uh, the Napa Valley and it's uh, surrounded on the north, east and west by uh, mountain ranges, but the valley floor is flat because there's this interaction between this upwelling of the mountains and then the weather coming down the rain and slowly eroding them to create this valley. And you think that the earth is solid and the sky is this, you know, amorphous thing that's almost kind of not really there, but in actuality, they're having this constant interaction, which is shaping them both. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in that way, it's a much slower process, but it, again, it's that, um, sex function where you have these two separate entities and they're interacting on each other and changing each other. Um, Cause of course, you know, mountains and uh, various shapes on earth tremendously affect weather patterns. So. Yeah. And I mean, it's just like, it's almost a perfect representation of like the axis mundi or like uh, where the mundane meets the, the sacred, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's super interesting. So, okay. All right. So this is, this is one of the things I was talking to you about. I painted myself in a corner on, on, uh-huh. <laughs> on, on, the, on the last episode. I, um, well, on Sunday's episode, we were talking about Libra four. Mm-hmm. Um, and Crowley just starts talking about chakras, like, like in the, like at the end of the book. And I started trying to attack this, this subject, trying to explain it. And I was like, was not prepared. It was like, not, <laughs> like ham handed, like <laughs> me trying to explain it. So I thought since you were coming on, maybe you could kind of educate us about like the chakras and the kun- the Kundalini. I know you have like a far vaster grasp on it than I have. And I don't think you need to get into a whole lot of detail. Um, but I thought that hopefully you would be able to help me out, <laughs> help me out out of this corner. <laughs> okay. Well, um, first of all, I, I want to say that, uh, there are a lot of these systems of subtle anatomy out there. And I'm going to be speaking about the one that was taught to me by the entities of my near death experience and concepts that I learned with my teacher, uh, Leslie Temple Thurston. There are a bunch of different ones out there. When um, I heard a guy, there was, he was recently on rune soup called Phil Hine. And he's been looking at the historical, uh, antecedents, the historical record regarding ideas of chakras. And some people, some traditions say there's five, others say there's seven. There's, you know, all these different ideas about what they are. Um, these are just things that I, how I have worked with it. And it's not too controversial, but you can always look into it for yourself. There's a lot of material out there. So um, as we're talking about, we're multidimensional beings and we have this spiritual aspect, the spiritual energy um, this divine consciousness that is just constantly emanating and pouring out through all of reality, um, manifest and unmanifest. Uh, so we need to have access to that. And we do have access to it through these subtle anatomy, which is, mirrors aspects of our physical anatomy, but it's not necessarily sensible to uh, mo- uh, modern science, let's say. Um, you can do various practices and become aware of these structures and work with them if you so desire. Um, so the, the two main 
things are going to be the core or shishimna, which is basically, it's kind of like a lit up fluorescent tube. This is mirrors your spine. So it goes from your perineum right between your uh, anus and your genitals, starts there in front of your spine, travels up right in front of your spine. It's just like a tube and up through the top of your head, the crown of your head. Mm-hmm. And this, it's kind of like a central nervous but for your spiritual side. And it basically, as I understand it, it takes in and kind of transforms uh, this raw spiritual energy and starts to organize it so that your, your system can access it, basically. Um, there's another set of organs of this same type of spiritual nature that are the chakras. Um, they are generally thought of as coming, uh, lying in front or and coming out of your core so you're going to have ones that are like at your third eye in your throat in your heart your solar plexus uh kind of in the bowl of your pelvis and then the root chakra is uh, again in your taint and then your crown <laughs> chakra is <laughs> is blooming forward from your um your your pineal gland and up through your crown and above your crown so these um, chakras bloom off of your uh, core, and they're very similar in a way to, I was trying to think of a good metaphor, a sensory organs, right? So you need to be able to, to see and to hear and to touch and to get information about the world that we're existing in, the physical world. Um, so you have these organs and their purposes, for example, your eyes is to take in a certain part of the light spectrum and process it and give it to your brain so it can make sense of it. Right. Your nose has different structures and it is, you know, sensing small amounts of chemicals and stuff that are in the air. Your ears are set up to catch certain vibrations in a certain range, less a smaller range as we age. <laughs> and get you. So, even if you, each of these organs is looking at the same reality, but it's just filtering it to you in a different way. So these chakras are kind of that way. They tend to be associated with um, expressing or tamping down, uh, bringing through energy in a way that is uh, structured with, um, for example, it will tend to uh, have a certain emotional states or kind of social states or processes associated with them, deities, colors, uh, even kind of uh, speeds of vibration, so to speak. Um, so, for example, you have the uh, throat chakra is normally associated with uh, expressions of creativity, uh, can be visual, speaking. Of course, it's also associated with speaking. Um, uh, and then you have, for example, the third eye, um, which is, what was I going to, oh, that's what I was going to try and say. So your throat, it has this kind of internal thing of you expressing, but you're expressing to an audience, right? So that makes it kind of a social thing as well. And yeah, um, the heart chakra is associated with a certain type of selfless emotion, selfless love, this kind of outpouring, again, this feeling in you, but also how is it expressed to other people and in various social concerns. Um, then you can have things like, for example, the third eye is a, an interesting one because there are certain, I want to say, uh, 
paranormal uh, abilities that would be associated with the various chakras. So for example, I believe that like your heart chakra, that opening up, you are going to be more liable to be empathetic with or feel the emotions of other people that could be, you know, halfway around the world or a ghost, that type of thing, get that emotional vibration. If you uh, have your third eye open, that's associated with psychism. So you could, for example, experience uh, telepathy with another person, um, which again, there is kind of like a paranormal thing, but it has this kind of social aspect to it too, which is like you're eavesdropping on other people without their knowledge or their own yeah. hearing. Um, and then, of course, when the core opens, then you're supposed to be able to, that's supposed to uh, enable you to experience these massively expanded, uh, clear states of consciousness. Um, the other one that's very popular is the uh, solar plexus. I don't know if it's popular, but people talk about it, which is <laughs> tends to be associated with your idea of your sense of yourself, your boundaries, who you are, that type of thing, kind of you in opposition to everything outside of you, which sounds kind of paradoxical since we're talking about, quote, spiritual matters, unquote. But if you're going to be an organism living here on planet Earth, you have to you have to know that, right? Yeah. So yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah. I like um I like when we can point to the stuff and say it's uh it's kind of like psychology, right? And that's kind of what we're talking about is like that one would represent like a aspect of like your ego or your mm-hmm. consciousness, you know? I I dig that. Yeah. So to get back to Kundalini, there is uh, supposed to be the it's a Hindu idea, and the idea is that there's this coiled snake of conscious divine energy, which is uh, in your root chakra. It's the base of your pelvis and your spine. There, um, it's feminine and it's very when it is awakened this energy will travel up through the core spill out through these various chakras and then as it reaches the various chakras it will give them this huge burst of energy and activate them you're going to have a lot of experiences associated with whatever's happening in those chakras so you can get all your psychological stuff stirred up or suddenly you're having uh, empathy with everyone you're feeling everyone else's emotions and it's driving you crazy you can also just have things like uh, you'll just be shaking or crying or having these feeling of electrical shocks vibrations um there is a uh, people listen to where did the road go soraya Azkath is the host and he has had uh many experiences with kundalini he had a kundalini awakening when he's fairly young I think like 10 or 12, something like that. And he's been living with it ever since. And he's done some shows about his experiences and other people that have had Kundalini awakenings. So I don't know if that gives people hopefully a little bit better idea of. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like it can be terrifying, right? Um, Yeah. uh, So, um, so when I was listening to you explain it, I thought mm-hmm. I thought it was it's kind of like an aspect or maybe like a reversal of like the Kabbalistic tree of life almost. Like mm-hmm. you know, you have like the ten sephiroths and then you have the end sof, which is like the original thought that filters through these different um lenses. And uh for the Kabbalah though, when you travel through the tree of life, you travel from the top down. But I mm-hmm. think it's interesting that with this Kundalini you travel from the bottom up. So I think I need to look at that a little bit, uh a little bit more. It's I don't wanna say. 
There are um, the one thing that I like about looking into, uh, for example, uh, more Eastern systems of thought, which I have not done it at, at all extensively. There's first of all, there's just a ton of material there. But for example, uh, ideas of yoga. There's a whole bunch of different types of yoga, and I like the idea that you could be going towards this goal of enlightenment or samadhi, um, developing your compassion, but there are a, a bunch of different paths that you can follow to get there, right? Mm-hmm. You can follow intellectual yoga or heart yoga, the yoga of selfless service. Um, there's, you know, various uh, esoteric practices as far as breathing practices and positions, that type of thing, um, energy work. But the, I like the idea that there are a lot of different ways that this can happen. So... Yeah, it's interesting. So I, I've i talked at length on my inability to meditate because um, uh-huh. I'm insomniac. I can't like slow my, my brain down. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was reading Lieber 4 again. I was like, oh, like that's part of it. Like noting when you break is part is part of the the growth. Like no one expects you just to sit down and meditate for eight hours and not, you know, break your your thought of you know, you like your pattern of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that that was really interesting. And then you mentioned at the beginning of the show, a lot about mindful meditation. I know that's like a, and also a different, um, like a different path, uh, like, like you were talking about. Yeah. There's a bunch of, of different ones out there. I, I, uh, when I had my near death experience, uh, one of the things that, that, that the entities kept saying was pay attention, which I'm sure was something that the people in the room were saying as they were tying <laughs> me down to the, <laughs> to the gurney. <laughs> but um, anytime you wake up like tied down. <laughs> yeah. You either, had anyway. a real, you, had a, you either had a real good night or a real bad night. One of the- <laughs> yeah. But um, the thing I like about that, for example, mindfulness meditation is that, you, you can do it on the fly. You can do it like in a lot of little bits during the day. And I like those type of practices because it, it's kind of less pressure and it keeps you on your toes because there's always something new to pay attention to. And, um, you know, if you just keep at it, even if it's just a little bit, you'll make progress over the years. I mean, it, Sometimes I, I look back and I think, wow, I know a lot more than I did now, but I, most of the time I've just been kind of plugging along, but it's just, I've been plugging along for a long time. <laughs> um, okay. Well, I feel like I've taken advantage of your time. Um, so I was hoping that maybe you could throw out some uh, plugs where people can reach out to you for uh, help. I know that you're active on Twitter and you're a bit long- yeah, um, that's the, I'm on Facebook as Stephanie Quick. Um, my blog, again, is Ghost Dog is a Mystery Box and Esoteric Memoir. I think it's a WordPress site, but you should be able to find it. And then I'm at Twitter. I should probably uh, leave a link because I ended up spelling my name kind of weird on there. But it's like <laughs> I had my Twitter account a lot, you know, years ago when I was no one gave a hoot. And I was like, uh. it doesn't matter. <laughs> If you just, if you search Stephanie Quick in Twitter, it pops up pretty easily. So oh, good. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> so that should be easy. And then Quick is just Q-U-I-C-K. But yeah, I, uh, yeah, first of all, thank you so much for having me on there. I just felt like this is a real, I was really interested to hear your insights on things. And it's, it's exciting. To, it's a, 
a different way of looking at how our world is unfolding around us and uh, it's exciting so yeah well thank you for coming on like i said um I, I was very excited about the stuff that you were writing about, especially the, that esoteric framework business. Um, yeah. yeah. So thank you so much for coming on and whenever you want to come back, just give me a, give me a holler. I, I would love to have you back at any time. Like we didn't even oh, I'd to, love to come back. Yeah. We didn't even talk about sex with disembodied uh, creatures. I, and I, I was, <laughs> I was hoping that we could. <laughs> get <into that. laughs> well, we'll ha- I'll have to come back on and we'll have the ghost sex. Uh, extravaganza (laughs) yeah all right so thank you very much uh i appreciate it okay thank you for listening to this episode send an email or visit us on social media to let us know what you think about this topic. And please remember to leave a five-star rate and review. 